the art of readable writing, Rudolf Flesch begins one of his chapters with this sentence, Only stories are really readable. He then shows how this principle is used by time in Reader's Digest. Almost every article in these top circulation magazines either is written as pure narrative or is generously sprinkled with anecdotes. There is no denying the power of a story to hold attention in talking for groups as well as writing for magazines. Norman Vincent Peale, whose sermons have been heard by millions of radio and television, says that his favorite form of supporting material in a talk is the illustration or example. He once told an interviewer from the Quarterly Journal of Speech that the true example is the finest method I know of to make an idea clear, interesting, and persuasive. Usually, I use several examples to support each major point. Readers of my books are soon aware of my use of the anecdote as a means of developing the main points of my message. The rules from how to win friends and influence people can be listed on one and a half pages. The other 230 pages of the book are filled with stories and illustrations to point up how others have used these rules with wholesome effect. How can we acquire this most important technique of using illustrative material? There are five ways of doing this. Humanize, personalize, specify, dramatize, and visualize. Humanize your talk. I once asked a group of American businessmen in Paris to talk on how to succeed. Most of them merely listed a lot of abstract qualities and gave preachments on the value of hard work, persistence, and ambition. So I hopped at this class and said something like this. We don't want to be lectured to. No one enjoys that. Remember, you must be entertaining or we will pay no attention whatever to what you are saying. Also remember that one of the most interesting things in the world is sublimated, glorified gossip. So tell us the stories of two men you have known. Tell why one succeeded and why the other failed. We will gladly listen to that, remember it, and possibly profit by it. There was a certain num member of that course who invariably found it difficult to interest either himself or his audience. This night, however, he seized the human interest suggestion and told us of two of his classmates in college. One of them had been so conservative that he had bought shirts at the different stores in town and made charts showing which ones laundered best, wore longest, and gave the most service per dollar invested. His mind was always on pennies, yet when he was graduated, it was an engineering college he had such a high opinion of his own importance that he was not willing to begin at the bottom and work his way up, as the other graduates were doing. Even when the third annual reunion of the class came, he was still making laundry charts of his shirts, while waiting for some extraordinarily good thing to come his way. It never came. A quarter of a century has passed since then, and this man, dissatisfied and soured in life, still holds a minor position. The speaker then contrasted with this failure the story of one of his classmates who had surpassed all expectations. This particular chap was a good mixer. Everyone liked him. Although he was ambitious to do big things later, he started as a draftsman. 
but he was always on the lookout for opportunity. Plans were then being made for the New York World's Fair. He knew engineering talent would be needed there, so he resigned from his position in Philadelphia and moved to New York. There, he formed a partnership and engaged immediately in the contracting business. They did considerable work for the telephone company, and this man was finally taken over by that concern at a large salary. I have recorded here only the bare outline of what the speaker told. He made his talk interesting and illuminating with a score of amusing and human interest details. He talked on and on. This man who could not ordinarily find material for a three-minute speech, and he was surprised to learn when he stopped that he had held the floor on this occasion for ten minutes. The speech had been so interesting that it seemed short to everyone. It was his first real triumph. Almost everyone can profit by this incident. The average speech would be far more appealing if it were rich with human interest stories. The speaker should attempt to make only a few points and to illustrate them with concrete cases. Such a method of speech building can hardly fail to get and hold attention. Of course, the richest source of such human interest material is your own background. Don't hesitate to tell us about your experiences because of some feeling that you should not talk about yourself. The only time an audience objects to hearing a person talk about himself is when he does it in an offensive, egotistical way. Otherwise, audiences are tremendously interested in the personal stories speakers tell. They are the surest means of holding attention. Don't neglect them. means when you tell stories involving others, use their names. Or if you want to protect their identity, use fictitious names. Even impersonal names like Mr. Smith or Joe Brown are far more descriptive than this man or a person. The label identifies and individualizes. As Rudolf Flesch points out, nothing adds more realism to a story than names. Nothing is as unrealistic as anonymity. Imagine a story whose hero has no name. If your talk is full of names and personal pronouns, you can be sure of high listenability, for you will have the priceless ingredient of human interest in your speech. Be specific. Fill your talk with detail. You might say at this point, this is all very fine, but how can I be sure of getting enough detail into my talk? There is one test. Use the 5W formula every reporter follows when he writes a new story. Answer the questions, when, where, who, what, and why. If you follow this formula, your examples will have life and color. Let me illustrate this with an anecdote of my own, one that was published by the Reader's Digest. After leaving college, I spent two years traveling through South Dakota as a salesman for Armor & Company. I covered my territory by riding on freight trains. One day, I had to lay over in Redfield, SD, for two hours to get a train going south. 
since Redfield was not in my territory, I couldn't use the time for making sales. Within a year, I was going to New York to study at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, so I decided to use this spare time practicing speaking. I wandered down through the train yards and began rehearsing a scene for Macbeth. Thrusting out my arms, I cried dramatically. Is this a dagger which I see before me? The handle tore by my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. I was still immersed in the scene when four policemen leaped upon me and asked why I was frightening women. I couldn't have been more astounded if they had accused me of robbing a train. They informed me that a housewife had been watching me from behind her kitchen curtains a hundred yards away. She had never seen such goings on, so she called the police, and when they approached, they heard me ranting about daggers. I told them I was practicing Shakespeare, but I had to produce my order book for armor and company before they let me go. Notice how this anecdote answers the questions posed in the 5W formula above. Of course, too much detail is worse than none. All of us have been bored by lengthy recitals of superficial, irrelevant details. Notice how in the incident about my near arrest in a South Dakota town, there is a brief and concise answer to each of the 5W questions. If you clutter your talk with too much detail, your audience will blue pencil your remarks by refusing to give you their complete attention. There is no blue pencil more severe than inattentiveness. Suppose you want to give an illustration of how you succeeded in calming down an irate customer by using one of the rules of human relations. You could begin like this. The other day, a man came to my office. He was pretty mad because the appliance we had sent out to his house only the week before was not working properly. I told him that we would do all we could to remedy the situation. After a while, he calmed down and seemed satisfied that we had every intention to make things right. This anecdote has one virtue. It is fairly specific, but it lacks names, specific details, and above all, the actual dialogue which would make this incident come alive. Here it is with these added qualities. Last Tuesday, the door of my office slammed and I looked up to see the angry features of Charles Lexham, one of my regular customers. I didn't have time to ask him to take a seat. Ed. This is the last straw, he said. You can't send a truck right out and cart that wash machine out of my basement. I asked him what was up. He was too willing to reply. It won't work, he shouted. The clothes will get all tangled and my wife's sick and tired of it. I asked him to sit down and explain it in more detail. I haven't got time to sit down. I'm late for work, and I wish I'd never come in here to buy an appliance in the first place. Believe me, I'll never do it again. Here, he hit the desk with his hand and knocked over my wife's picture. Look, Charlie, I said. If you will just sit down and tell me all about it, I promise to do whatever you want me to do. With that, he sat down and we calmly talked it over. It isn't always possible to work dialogue into your talk, but you can see how the direct quotation of the conversation in the excerpt 
helps to dramatize the incident for the listener. If the speaker has some imitative skill and can get the original tone of voice into the words, dialogue can be more effective. Also, dialogue gives your speech the authentic ring of everyday conversation. It makes you sound like a real person talking across a dinner table, not like a pendant delivering a paper before a learned society or an orator ranting into a microphone. Visualize by demonstrating what you are talking about. Psychologists tell us that more than 85% of our knowledge comes to us through visual impressions. No doubt this accounts for the enormous effectiveness of television as an advertising as well as entertainment medium. Public speaking, too, is a visual as well as auditory art. One of the best ways to enrich a talk with detail is to incorporate visual demonstration into it. You might spend hours just telling me how to swing a golf club, and I might be bored by it. But get up and show me what you do when you drive a ball down the fairway, and I am all eyes and ears. Likewise, if you describe the erratic maneuvers of an airplane with your arms and shoulders, I am more intent on the outcome of your brush with death. I remember a talk given in an industrial class that was a masterpiece of visual detail. The speaker was poking good-natured fun at inspectors and efficiency experts. His mimicry of the gestures and bodily antics of these gentlemen as they inspected a broken-down machine was more hilarious than anything I have ever seen on television. What is more, visual detail made that talk memorable. I, for one, shall never forget it. And I'm sure the other members of that class are still talking about it. It is a good idea to ask yourself, how can I put some visual detail into my talk? Then proceed to demonstrate, for, as the ancient Chinese observed, one picture is worth 10,000 words.